Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is more VUCA ahead with my friend, Oren Zeslansky. How's it going, Oren? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm very excited to have Oren on my podcast. Thank you so much for coming back. Let me give a little statement here. I interview lots of very impressive people, but Oren is perhaps one of the most impressive people I've had on my podcast. And uh, so I'm excited to have him back on my podcast. And um, we're going to talk about VUCA. And I know those of you who listen to my podcast probably got tired of me saying VUCA, but it's very appropriate in this in this sense. And Oren's going to talk about some of that VUCA that is in our supply chain right now. So first, Oren, please introduce yourself and your company, where you're calling from today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, my name is Oren Zaslansky. I'm the founder and CEO of, of Flock Freight. I'm currently in our HQ2 in Chicago, and HQ1 is in the San Diego area in a little town, a beach town called Encinitas. And Flock is building a, a smarter supply chain. We are fundamentally changing the way freight moves using using technology. We combine LTL partials, half full loads into what we call shared truckloads. So quite simply, there's two two major problems we're addressing. One is about half the time in the full truckload industry, those trucks are only loaded half full. Uh, that's uh, incredibly wasteful, both financially and uh, from a sustainability standpoint. So from a financial standpoint, we can go to a shipper and say, don't pay for the entire truck and only load it half full. Give it to us and we'll combine it. We'll use our software and we can guarantee it at the point of sale to combine it with our other customers' freight. Could be two half trucks, could be you know a half truck and two quarters and, and so on and so on. And put those together. And from the carrier standpoint, carriers can come to us and, and give us a little bit of data, log into our digital tools. And, and if they're half full or half empty, we can put some more freight and therefore more revenue on board and help the carrier side make some more money. That's kind of one product offering a flock. The other side of flock freight is taking LTL, sort of your, your two, four, six pallet traditional LTL shipments that would be moving across, as we call it, the hub and spoke sort of seven drivers, seven trucks, seven terminals between LA and Chicago. Instead, we make that hubless or terminal free so that the uh, we, we turn them those also into these shared truckloads or ride sharing for freight. So we'll send a 53-footer by a, a full truckload carrier to make a, a pickup and we'll never touch the freight. So that's a big differentiator for us is that freight is never going to be unloaded. It's never going to be cross-docked as we'd say in the industry. It's not going to be resequenced in any way. It's going to get loaded on a 53 with two, three, four of our other customers, and it's going to ride straight to destination. And that way, customers can do two things. One is they only pay for the amount of truck that they use. So instead of paying for a full truck and only loading it half full, they can pay for the amount they need. And secondarily, as we make sure that that freight never travels through any of those terminals. And, and the reason why that's important, I'm sure your audience knows, is from, from a quality perspective. On-time pickup, on-time delivery, faster transit, no damage, loss and theft. LTL is a challenging environment. Traditional LTL is a challenging environment. We're bringing full truckload service to the LTL shipper, and we're bringing, ironically, shared truckload service to the full truckload shipper that is otherwise going to pay for the full load. Yeah, there's a lot to, lot to uh, discuss in all that, but um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about sustainability. So you mentioned we have half full trucks, and I remember you're the first one who said this on my podcast, but it, it resonated with me is that we always talk about empty miles. The worst thing that can happen to a, to a supply chain, I shouldn't say the worst thing. One of the things we're really trying to avoid is a truck driver driving empty. That's wasteful. We It's bad for the environment. It's bad for the trucking company. It's bad for everybody. So- so we put a pallet on there and go, there you go. It's not empty anymore. We sent a pallet. Uh, still <laughs> yeah. bad. And yeah. and um, I don't know if we have actual stats on it, but we do know that a lot of trucks are driving around half empty. So how many extra trucks do we have on the road daily because we haven't figured out how to share loads, share share that truck? Yeah. Our, our math is about 25%. You know, if you take a huge industry like the full truckload industry, which is about four to $500 billion a year, US alone, that we believe half of those trucks are only half full. So a half of a half is another way of saying one quarter of, of the whole. 
but hopefully that's, that's not too too messy in how I've explained that. So that means about 25%. It's almost like saying, well, 75% of the trucks are totally full. That's great. But 25% are completely empty. Right. And unlike Deadhead, you know, my first business at age 21 was a full truckload carrier. It's, it's something I, I understand and I've spent, you know, most of my adult life in support of. You know, deadhead might be three, five, seven, eight percent. If it's touching double digit, you know, you've got a real problem. So there are miles being driven. You know, I emptied out in Newark and I get reloaded in Long Island City, and I those miles are empty from a sustainability standpoint, wasteful. There's no doubt about it. I would argue that there are many, many firms working in support of that. Both kind of, we'll just say, old school and new school, and as they should, it's a real problem. At Flock, it's it's built into what we support as well. But the difference maker here is. You know, to your point, you can fit just round numbers, 26 pallets on a 53-foot trailer. Putting one pallet on board does not mean that the, the total consumption of diesel fuel and carbon emissions is, is equal on one pallet as it is would, would, would be with 26. So we need to make sure those trucks are full. But, but we can take it even a little further. We can talk driver shortage. You know, yeah. I started in the industry in the late 90s, driver shortage in the late 90s. We're in the early 2020s, driver shortage. It's, it's a real thing. But, but how severe is it if 25% of the trucks are effectively empty? If half the time they're only half full, if we could ensure that all those trucks were full all the time, we'd have several, several big benefits. One, of course, is the, the shippers would be getting more bang for their buck. They would effectively be saving money because they would fill up or they would only pay for the portion that they needed. The carriers, I can assure you, to the degree that they were full all the time, would be able to command uh, a, a better rate, you know, something closer to a living wage. The fact that a shipper loads a truck half full is no fault of the carriers. They've showed up with an empty 53-footer. They only get 26 to 30 linear feet loaded on board. The reality is, from a shipper perspective, at the end of the day, and I understand it, they're looking at their cost per unit. They're, they're, they're fundamentally looking at it and saying, you know, I've got a thousand boxes on board. I could have had 2,000, but I only had 1,000. And, and so what's my transportation cost on a per package basis? From a sustainability standpoint, we'll burn the same amount of diesel or maybe incrementally more because the trailer is a little bit heavier, but we're effectively going to burn the same amount of diesel to hold something that's, that's completely full. But also if we think about traffic and congestion for all of us, it's just, oh, you know, you drive to work every day and, and, and the, the, the frustration that the truck drivers, that the men and women who are driving these trucks and quite frankly, making sure that we eat, thankfully, for the hard work that, that they do. You know, if, if all the trucks were full, we wouldn't need quite so many oh, yeah. on the road. We wouldn't have the shortage. It wouldn't be as exacerbated as it feels. We'd have less traffic congestion, less emissions. Shippers would save money. And because we can get the trucks fuller or as close to full as possible, the carriers have an opportunity to make a better living. You know, the idea is to create you know, doing well by doing good. A flock can build a valuable asset, and at the same time, we could really support so many uh, important stakeholders. Yep. Yeah, and you're in Chicago right now, so I'm sure you've driven around. Have you ever seen more trucks in your whole damn life as in Chicago? <laughs> it's, I, it's Chicago. I mean, we're in the middle of everything. It's a fantastic place to be. It is. I, I've driven from Detroit area where I live to Milwaukee a million times, my family there. And you drive through Chicago and you're like, why am I the only one without a truck? It just seems between between <laughs> there and Gary, Indiana, just so many trucks. But one of the things you touched on was the emissions. And I from and maybe you have different stats, but I believe 5% of greenhouse gases comes from truck emissions over the road trucking. Is that about right? Is that what you've heard? You know, I, I, I believe I've heard it higher. Um, I want to say it's in the like 20 to 30% category. It's the, to my knowledge, the number two driver of greenhouse gas. Number one is is methane from cows. It's effectively meat. And number two is the is the trucking industry. We have a point of view that's very inside out, I think, as a couple of people that have been working in freight, you know, for in this industry for, for decades. I'm not so sure I believe that that outsiders have a have a better point of view than those of us who really understand this industry. We understand the nooks and crannies of it. The deep dark corners, whether we want to see what's there or not, is is something different. You know, cognitive dissonance is a powerful phenomenon. You know, sometimes we all just want to stick our head in the ground, but of course we don't because it's not an effective way of getting anything done. What we know because we work in this industry is that let's just fill those trucks up. That's a win-win. Shipper pays for what they use. Carrier makes more money. We reduce greenhouse gas emissions to the number two driver of greenhouse gas emissions. And it, it, it truly costs us nothing. We're not talking about 
introducing an entirely new uh, magic truck that has no emissions. Or, or we don't have to worry about a Fed reg being come in and, and saying, hey, must no. do. And, you know, if the, we either regulate ourselves or the Fed regs come in and I'm not being critical of the government, but they don't know, understand the yeah. problem as well. And they would do the best they can to put some guardrails up for us, but much better that we do it on our own because I think supply chain itself is 80% of greenhouse gases. Guys, we do it ourselves and, or again, feds, feds will do it for us. We, we, we can do better, right? I, I think one thing the Fed has done that, that I'm in support of is the SEC now has a reporting requirement of carbon emissions on behalf of publicly listed companies. So the, the big Fortune 500, the Fortune 1000 that are publicly traded, they're now going to be scored. And this is all happening in real time. There's no regulatory pressure to do anything. You don't have to, to my knowledge, actually change the way you do business. What you do have to do is give the consumer some information. So it's a bit akin to you walk into a, a restaurant, and there's the calories on the menu. You know, I don't know about you. That's a terrible thing to see. You know, when I oh, see yeah. the calories on the menu, it changes my behavior. Now, by the way, it's not regulated. I can still order the cheesecake if I want to. Nobody's telling me I can't do that. But that being said, I see that it has, you know, 1,200 calories in it. And I think, meh, I'm not going to do that. You know, or I see the, 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 the soda, you know, uh, has so many calories in it. I may choose not to do that. There's now a reporting requirement for publicly listed companies in order to report their carbon emissions. And ultimately, consumers may or may not change behavior. I mean, I believe they will, but I could be. Totally I, I, I do, too. I do, too. And I think um, you're right. When you walk into the donut shop and you see here's what a donut, <laughs> you don't th think, oh, boy, this $2 donut is expensive. You think, God darn, I'm going off my diet. The money is the least of the issue, right? And right. I feel the same way. I had somebody on my podcast was talking about the public transit in France where you pay the money, but it also gives on the ticket an estimated greenhouse gases from that. And I can, I can see the e-commerce companies doing that because if I'm delivering to Oren's house every day and you go, yeah, Oren needs these things in two hours. All these things need to go to his house in two hours. If you were to bundle them, you would have this much less emissions. And at some point, you're going to go, God darn it, <laughs> I got to do better. <laughs> and we do, we, we, we have customers who come to us and partner us for various ESG compliance initiatives. In some case, they do it because they're passionate about it. You know, we're a certified B Corp, you know, one of the only. Yeah, the speak about what is that B Corp? Yeah, B Corp is, is real. So for, for people who've worked around various forms of, of ESG, ESG compliance, sustainability, I'm not going to name names, but there's all sorts of like brands that can sort of certify you. The difference between B Corp and to my knowledge, basically everything else is B Corp says no <laughs> to the vast majority of the people who apply. You have to quantitatively, empirically using data, prove that you're driving greater sustainability into whatever it is that you're working on. So when we first approached B Corp, they said, no, thank you. In fact, the conversation was something along the lines of you're the trucking company, which, of course, isn't, isn't true. We're a technology company. But that being said, given their their point of view. Broad brush was, there. <laughs> yeah, broad, very broad brush. It's more of a roller, you know, in this case. And and they would say, hey, you're sort of the bad guy. You're creating, you know, all this greenhouse gas. And, and our response was, hey, look, first of all, let's be grownups about this. You know, we all enjoy eating. And the food that we eat came on a truck. So please do not malign the entire you know, supply chain industry. That's not the right way to think about it. I think the right way to think about it is next best alternatives. To the degree that our food is, is grown and processed in one place in the world and consumed in another part of the world, let's understand it's going to have to be shipped. But were we able to ship it in a way that produces far less greenhouse gas? And we've been able to prove 40 plus percent off the back of those two products we talked about earlier. Number one is let's make sure a half empty truck is full. You can, you can just easily see there the savings in greenhouse gas emissions. From a greenhouse standpoint, it's catching a free ride. From a transportation standpoint, it's definitely not free, but it's much lower cost because that inventory is already going to be moving you know, between those two city pair. And then from the, the LTL conversion standpoint, there's a tremendous number of additional miles that are driven between the ultimate shipper origin and the constant destination. And again, in the old LA to Chicago use case, because of these seven trucks, seven drivers, seven terminals versus saying, let's just load it on a trailer and drive straight there. Achieving B Corp certification was, was massive for us. It took, took a long time. We have to recertify every two years. It's a big data dump 
to continue to prove what we're doing. That being said, it does a lot of things for us. Maybe what's obvious is it helps us on the go-to-market. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I get really frustrated when you know, uh, do-gooders, so to speak, are uncomfortable with money or profit. And I would say that, that is the wrong way to think right. about it. The best way to change the world for the better, the best way to save the world is to make it profitable and easy, frictionless. If we can make it easy for people to do the right thing, if we can make it profitable for them to do the right thing, everybody's going to do that. The, the pain points are, yeah, I want to do the right thing, but I don't really feel like I can afford or I choose not to pay a premium or... It's, it's hard. It's complicated. I got, you know, recycling, I'm sorting and composting and all these different components. It's, it's too much brain drain. I don't know that it's very effective or efficient. So you have to get really comfortable. So our ability to take B Corp and take it to market to help particularly enterprise class customers achieve ESG initiatives by getting the same and in many cases better quality and saving money. It's a no-brainer. It helps us from a talent perspective. You know, we stand out amongst our peers. And so a lot of the world's most talented engineers, data scientists, salespeople, marketers, accountants will choose our mission in addition to our, our substantial enterprise value and say, hey, I want to make a bunch of money. I'm not going to feel bad about that. And I also want to do right by the earth. And, and Flock offers them an opportunity to both. Lastly, what's maybe a little bit less obvious is because of the recertification requal process we go through every couple of years keeps us honest. I'll be really candid, you know, as a, as a CEO of a, of a late stage venture backed business and, you know, with a lot of pressures and a lot of demands, you know, I, I'm a human being, you know, I'm not all good. I'm not all bad. I'm, I'm a human I'm, and shades of gray can enter into it sometimes. And, and the recall process is a really healthy way of reminding me and the entire team, what we're playing for that. No, we, could do that. That other choice or option might be a little easier, might be a little bit safer bet. Going to do that, we're a B Corp and that matters. And so it's been, it's been really valuable for us. Yeah. I, I got a few things I want to add to that. As my youngest daughter went to school for sustainable business and I was very happy she did. Great. She went to a little school called Aquinas in Grand Rapids, about two hours from Detroit area. And when she was talking about sustainable business, they would say it has to be good for people, good for the planet, good for profits. All three. Yeah. And Fantastic. she said when a lot of people would say, well, I, you know, what about this idea? And then the professor would always say, yeah, that sounds good, but there's no profit in that. And they're like, that's okay. Cause, cause it's good for the planet. It's good for people. And he said, it's going out of business. If you go out of business by being really good to people and really good to the planet, somebody else is going to replace you who is not good for the planet, who's not good for people. So <laughs> she always made the point you need all three. Now that's in a, academic world. I've had the debate with her many times about Walmart. Everybody loves to pile on Walmart. Walmart's the one who went to all of their soap companies, the soap wash for your washing machine and said, we want to concentrate, get the water out of that. We're sick and tired of shipping water around. It doesn't help anybody. So, so you think about Walmart just making that a concentrate. What does that save? saves it's got to be thousands Tremendous of truckloads thousands of truckloads and you just apply it that's one place and so by the way when i was still doing logistics we used to move solar panel brackets huge solar panel brackets to all walmarts all around the country because they have solar panels on top of their roof they've spent a lot of time and effort becoming a green company but let's face it they're in a, a business that uses a lot of resources so of course, they get piled on just like the trucking industry where you're like, you're inherently evil. Well, we're, we're doing a better job than we did yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I think those are great examples. I completely agree. And I would add to it here at Flock, we define sustainability more broadly. There's the obvious environmental sustainability. Obviously, we're passionate about that. You know, like one of the only B Corps in freight, like we, we, we get it. But I also define sustainability as financially sustainable. You know, we don't live on government subsidy. We don't live on donations. You know, we live ultimately on being profitable and generating free cash flow. This company is profitable in order to bring our, we need to be financially sustainable in order to bring our environmentally sustainable solutions. By bringing environmentally sustainable solutions, we are differentiated and therefore more profitable, which, you know, virtuous cycle. It, it is frustrating for people who believe that you need to be all of one or the other, that, you know, you need to be completely fixated on profits and be part of yeah. like the evil empire, and that's all you can be. Or, you know, you need to be a pure
pure NGO and, you know, we're not going to get our hands dirty with money. I, I would I would completely and utterly reject that and say, you want to do this right? You want to do this for decades to come? You need to build something that is profitable and financially sustainable. And at the same time, you better be working on something that makes the earth a better place. Like, why, why would you not pour yourself into both of those objectives? And I say it all the time on my podcast. Your grandparents or great-grandparents did not care one little bit about the environment because they were probably more worried about putting food on the plates of their children. And that's kind of the nature of this is only rich people care about sustainability. So we have to have a certain standard of living. If I'm missing a meal or two a day, by the way, I could afford to lose miss a meal or two a day. <laughs> but if you're going hungry, you don't care about the environment. And so, so the idea that we're going to somehow all become, go back to the Middle Ages, is not going to happen. Well, you know, even even on that point, not to belabor it too long, but but I would say that even for those people without economic means, you know, everybody's health is affected by this. I mean, there are cities in the world that it looks like it's snowing. It's not snowing. Oh, yeah. You know, there, there are parts of the world where the temperatures are getting so high or they don't have access to water. I mean, you could say, look, I'm a subsistence farmer. You know, my mission is to just literally vertically put food on my, my uh, table, you know, to feed my children. And that's getting harder and harder to do because of the environment that's changing. I don't think the answer lies in, you know, heavy handed regulation that says everyone must or everyone right. can no longer. I don't think the solution lies in, you know, living on, on donations, quite frankly. I think the solution lies in let's challenge one another to figure out how to profitably make it easier to save the world. And that's that's not an easy thing to do. Flock freight does not exist by accident. It exists through, you know, sheer will and grit. And we were talking about the unicorn or the uh, the rhino. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, if you're listening to my podcast, <laughs> he has a, a rhino t-shirt on. What does it say underneath it? What's the words underneath? It says battle unicorn. So for those of you who are familiar with, you know, tech, you know, flock freight is a unicorn. A, you guys are not a unicorn. <laughs> but 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 we're not a unicorn in true sense. You know, we're valued at more than a billion dollars. But what we are is a you're more than a, you're more than a unicorn. Yeah, we are a rhino. We are tough and we we smash and we take the, the more difficult path and we're hardy and we're resilient. We're talking about supply chain resiliency and we're, you know, we're, we're clever. I mean, we are lots of things. But the idea of just sort of uh, fancy is, is not how I would describe it. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're not multicolored and uh, dancing dancing across the meadow? <laughs> no, we, we, we're we strong and and mighty and, again, you know, tough and resilient. And, and, and we, we've certainly seen over the last few years how... how right. We need, we need that. So, by the way, guys, we need, we need to cover a whole bunch of Oren's background. He's got a fantastically interesting background. I'll, I'll link to my last interview with Oren, but I told Oren, if he could, just to give us a sense for where he's coming from and where uh, Flock Freight is coming from, his one of his babies. Tell us the six-minute mile story that you tell your team all the time. Yeah, the the six-minute mile. So we call it the the you know the the six oh one six oh one mile. <laughs> and and the reason is so you know I had the opportunity to play uh, indoor volleyball in college, and it was my my life's passion. You know, at age twenty, and and something I you know absolutely lived for. Uh, and I played it at a very competitive university. You know, participating in the in the final four and national championship type type theater. And so, you know, we trained hard, you know, you get to a certain point in your career, whether it's athletic or professional, where everybody's talented, everybody's strong or tall or jumps well or yeah, smart. And that's or another thing. You're six, five, and you were one of the small guys on the team. <laughs> I, I, was, I was the little guy. I go into the reunions. It's humbling. You know, my kids look at me like, dad, we thought you were tall, but you're, you're not that tall. I'm like, eh, you know, by the way, this is life, you know, I mean, it depends on the context, I suppose. So, you know, we, we trained hard because the differentiator for us ultimately was more than just being talented. Everybody at that level was talented. So instead, what stood us apart was grit. So I played volleyball for Long Beach State, and, and we, we call ourselves grit, you know, grit nation. And I think it's a big part of, you know, being a rhino today as opposed to a traditional unicorn is, is the grit that I learned. And so one of the things we would do, because our, our head coach there at that time, was, was a former track athlete. So he brought that track and running mentality to a bunch of very tall, skinny volleyball players. And we, we at the end of our fitness training, kind of preseason eight weeks or however long it was of preseason conditioning, the sort of finishing test was to run a sub six minute mile. Now, for any real runners listening to this right now, I apologize in advance. I know you're thinking like, I could fire many of those 
no big deal. But you know, when the average height is like six seven, six eight, you know, that's flying. Pounds, that's flying when you're that it's big. Flying. <laughs> it's flying. It's fast. We had to run one mile in under six, and so you know, it was my fourth year there. The first three years, my goal not being a great runner, and none of us were great runners. We had a few few guys that could run at sub five, you know, which is no joke. You, you've got a four point something. That, that's a phenomenal athlete. Those were the really little guys by our standard, meaning like only 6'2", you know, but but the big guys, it was it was much tougher. My goal was 545. You know, I think a lot in life too is knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're just good enough. And in the case of running a six-minute mile, I wasn't going to win that race. There's no way in hell. But I also wasn't going to be the reason why the team missed. Because of course the team had some theoretical esoteric, it can't possibly be real if one person misses Everybody does it again. I mean, it was always like breathed into the conversation, but none of us ever seen it before, nor did any of us actually think it could ever play out that way. You know, so I ran my 545, 550 freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, my, my senior year there, you know, we line up as we do and it's, you know, it is what it is and you drink some Gatorade and then you get out in the line and you run this thing and it, you're very inward, right? You're very focused. On, I just need to finish this thing. There's no winning. It's just the whole team is going to finish. Coach is literally there with the old school stopwatch, you know, counting them off. And one person came in at 602. And we, we didn't even know it was happening, right? Because you're just so focused on yourself. And I'm kind of in the like third quartile, maybe the top of the fourth quartile, right. just trying to get it done. And the coach ultimately kind of pauses and says, so-and-so, you didn't make it, 602. And the rest of us kind of looked around and thought, okay, what does that mean? Like, we know in theory what you said this would mean, but you're not actually going to follow through, are you? The coach did what, what at the time and today, you know, so many years later, I think was the right thing. He held us accountable and he said, everybody take five minutes, stretch out, keep moving, grab some water, oh, get back. Oh, no, no. And, you know, you, you think a lot of things. You're also, look, the context is you're like 20 years old. You know, you're still as much a kid as you are a grown up kind of man child is, is the way to describe us. So we line up on the line again. We do it again. You know, my initial, let's say 545 is now like a 555, but you get it done. Everybody gets it done. And this same person runs again, like a 601, 602. Oh my uh, God. Now, you're, now you're out of your mind. You know, like it, there's no third time. You're out of your mind. I think the coach gives us 30 minutes, kind of literally keep moving, walk around, stretch. You know, he's worried about injuries and, and cramps and that type of thing. Keep drinking, you know, the energy drinks. And now, and he kind of tells us, maybe you all should come up with a plan. Maybe you should think about you're a team and how do you support your teammate? At that age, our response is, you know, F that guy. You know, I mean, yeah, we let's, just let's let's kill him. <laughs> kill him. You know, like fair or not, you're you're just you're so uh, angry. And so, you know, we we lined up and and I, I don't know that as a team we made the right choice. We we got our strongest runners, those guys who were were at least in the first go around able to run a sub five. No one was running that fast on the third go. And people like myself were it was understood we're just trying to make a five fifty five at this point. You know, like that's all we have in the tank. So we took our strongest folks and we said you know, encourage in air quotes for those only listening, encourage this person to get over the line. And, and that's the one part of the story I really regret. We did not encourage, we, we berated, you know, we, we took the wrong approach as, as you sometimes do. And you look back on it. Probably angry and exhausted. Yep. We were angry and exhausted, but you know, we could have done better and, and he deserves better. He's a member of the team. So we, we supported him and I guess the way we felt uh, best. And of course he missed again because there was nothing about this that was encouraging the coach shut it down. It was, you know, not late, maybe 5, 6, 7 p.m. and said, uh, 5 a.m. tomorrow morning, we do oh. this again. And, and I encourage all of you to think about what you're going to do different or better and how you're going to make sure the whole team, like no naming names, but I mean, it was one person. So the next morning we show up at 5 in the dark under the track lights on the campus. And we make a decision this time that we will this person. And the coach is literally like, you can carry him. I don't care. You know, it's, it's 12 12 guys getting across the line in under six. Uh, we were much more supportive. That being said, this person did not make it once again. And that was the end of this person's career. It was go clean out your locker. Um, 602 miles don't work. That I've reflected on a lot over, over my couple of decades since. Was the coach right or wrong? What would I do if I were the coach? And now as a CEO, I, I, I sort of am. Now, now you are the coach. I am. <laughs> and I will honestly say I just don't know. I, I think I'm, I've learned enough to know that I don't always have the answers. I, I would say, though, that I share that story 
all the time, particularly with the teams, whether sales teams or people working on deadlines. And I tell them, I do fundamentally believe this to be true. And so maybe I think the coach was more right than wrong, even though I don't enjoy saying that. The reason is, at the end of the day, the only difference between 601 and 602 versus 559 is grit, is will is being a rhino as opposed to being a unicorn. And so we to say we wear it on our sleeve is, is literal. I'm literally wearing it on my chest right now. I'm wearing this t-shirt, you know, proud. We did an all hands just prior to, to me jumping on with you. And I stood up in front of nearly 600 flockers wearing this shirt. And they know why I'm wearing it. You know, times are tough. We're a rhino. We don't run 602 miles. You know, the, this is the thing people need to realize. 559 is great. There's no difference between a 530 and a 559 if the goal is sub six. You get it done. But the difference between 559 and 601 is a lot more than two seconds. Now, of course, there's a point where that's not true. The difference between 401 and 359 is like an hour. You know, like that. that is the, the world elite fraction, fraction, fraction bips of a percent of the human population who can do that. But that's not true at 559 and 601. There's like a double digit percentage of the population that can absolutely go out and do that. I, I'm no longer one of them, but that can go out there and do that today. You know, you've got to have a level of tenacity, a level of grit. You have to be willing to chew glass to do something of significance. I don't tolerate well the term, you know, that's hard. If somebody says to me that what we're working on is hard, if somebody uh, pushes back and says, hey, we need to get this or that figured out, well, that's hard. I don't do well with that's hard. I would argue, well, you said you wanted to change the world. Did you expect it to be easy? Anything worth doing is hard. Well, I love it. I love that you're, you're developing that culture that has that grit. And boy, you know, in the recent years, and you're in California, and I joke about this sometimes. You hear people say California, oh my God, California, they're so woke, they're <laughs> Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but look at how many great companies yeah. are based there. I mean, greatness. Is that, I mean, that, that split it off, and it's one of the gr- biggest countries in the world. Yeah. But I, I also think you're from San Diego. San Diego isn't the same as Hollywood. <laughs> this is where the Navy lives. That's where you're from. There's a, and we've gotten a weird place where you're like, I think sometimes, and it's not everywhere, but you're almost lauded for being a victim. You're, oh, look how vulnerable I am. I'm a victim. I'm if somebody needs help, I'm all for it. But I love the idea of grit and trying harder and working harder and not quitting. I think that's probably the most important thing in in business. Well, you know, the the subtext on grit is grit's a choice. So, you know, we were just talking in our all hands about deflation. So as, as I'm sure you and your audience knows, there's been tremendous deflation in freight costs. Ocean is like unbelievable, like hundreds of percent deflation. Uh, ground freight, like truckload freight's deflated 40%, you know, since the beginning of the year and ultimately is super healthy. You know, I mean, the, the fact that at least the cost of, of, of moving something has come down, that's a deflationary line item in a sea of what has largely been inflationary line items in our, in our economy right now. So that, that, that's, in fact, a bright spot. But, you know, when you're a business that values revenue as we do and growth as we do and margin as we do, seeing deflation can be a little bit painful because, you know, our revenue could, you know, we're still growing, don't get me wrong. But the, but the revenue per unit is less than it was um, a year ago. But I tell the team, control what we can control. We're not going to obsess over that. We're going to control the things we can control. That's the way I think about attitude and the way I think about grit. I can choose to chew glass, or I can choose not to. I choose to chew glass. I think some of it is, you know, being the son of, of immigrants who came to this country and said, I want a piece of the American dream. I want to work super hard. I want that Americana, that story. And they worked their asses off. And I got to see that. And they did it so that myself and my sister, you know, would have a chance at something better. I think part of it is kind of, you know, I, I observed it. I, I witnessed it up uh, up close. Um, I think another part of it is that sports background and, and playing for a track coach, you know, even though I was a volleyball player who said, get it done. And, and we can- I say that on my podcast all the time. I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan. I joke about it. I used to think that playing sports was like the law. Like I had to play yeah. football, hockey, a swim team, dive team. I remember playing lacrosse. I don't even know why. I played lacrosse one year. You name it, we had to play it. And I remember a friend of mine just was saying, remember when we played water polo that one year? And I was like, yeah, I don't know what the hell that was all about. <laughs> Everything. But, but I never played at the level that you did. But I feel like I learned as much or more on the field about winning, losing, grit, being part of a team. 
And you know, it's funny when you, you tell, tell a kid, hey, you're only letting yourself down by not working on your schoolwork. You're like, all right, I'll let myself down. I'm okay with that. But when you're on the football field and somebody says you're you're like pulling guard and you weren't in position, now I'm letting all my buddies down. That's different. I won't do that. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I have this, I have this perspective with, uh, with money. My first two previous businesses prior to Flock, I bootstrapped, meaning it, you know, borrowed some money and and started that. I was never as good with my own money. I didn't value it as much, which is maybe a little counterintuitive for folks. This business is venture back, meaning we have lots of venture capital firms that have invested lots of money. Yeah, I, I am the responsibility of their money. You know, it's their money. If people occasionally introduce me as the owner of Flock, I'm harshly quick to say I do not own it. I am the founder, <laughs> CEO. I'm a large shareholder. I do not own this. This is owned by the employees. It's owned by our investors, other people's money. The responsibility that comes with that is very different to your point of saying, it's my grades, it's my career, whatever I want, like I'm hurting myself versus when there are others that are counting on us. A totally different responsibility. So let's switch gears. I wanted to talk about, so the t- today's title is More VUCA Ahead with my friend Oren Zaslansky. So Oren, before we hit record, we talked about this title and I, I said VUCA so many times on my podcast last year, but here I am saying it again, but it still applies guys. So just to remind you guys, VUCA is um, a term I think came up in the 80s from some consultants came up with it, of course, and it stands for V for volatility, U for uncertainty. C for complexity and A for ambiguity. And the first time I heard it, I was listening to Brett Gleason's, one of his books. He's a former Navy SEAL. And he was talking about VUCA in terms of what they saw in the Middle East, meaning there's volatility, which is just the dynamics of change. And then uncertainty, I can't predict what's going to happen. And then complexity, all these different forces, right? I don't know what's under what the underlying forces. So I have this complexity. Then the ambiguity is kind of the haziness of it, like their lack of reality. And what, like, what am I actually seeing? As if, What I'm seeing, is that real? So we have VUCA in our supply chain and we really had it during COVID. But when Oren, yeah, Oren had a number of things he wanted to talk about, I'm counting him, that are the supply chain disruptions. I'm counting three, probably more than that. But anyway, and, and ways that Flock Freight can potentially help people get through some of this VUCA. And so with that... Oren, what is what is going on? What, you mentioned the deflation. What's some other challenges we have right now in the supply chain? Well, in, in 2020 and 2021, when things are kind of bull whipping and there's all this uncertainty out there, and I think it's important for your audience to know that the the volatility and the uncertainty are very much correlated. They they drive one another. So we can have absolute volatility, meaning, you know, manufacturing closes in Q2 of 2020. You know, some are alive and some aren't. Or, or, or open and, and some aren't. And that's a lot of volatility. You've got carriers shutting down, drivers going home, real volatility. In some cases, there's uncertainty. We just don't know what's going to happen around the corner. We don't know if the railroad is going to go on strike, uh, particularly in a consortium where the top seven, uh, you know, uh, rail providers and, and that represents, you know, double digit percentage of goods moving on the ground, you know, here in, in the United States and North America. You know, we've got uncertainty as it relates to diesel, diesel availability, which will drive uncertainty around diesel prices, which will create more inflation which curbs and changes the way manufacturers ship and produce. You can imagine if you're a manufacturer in Los Angeles and shipping costs are skyrocketing and you're not able to pass through all of those costs, you may choose to not sell to East Coast customers anymore. You may choose to sell more regionally in the Western 11 states. Maybe if you're in LA, you get all the way to the point where you're only selling into you know LA, Vegas, and Phoenix You know within a few hundred mile radius. It can sometimes be the actual volatility of it. Fuel prices skyrocket. The rail goes on strike, which will cause even greater, you know, pent up demand for those trucks. In some cases, it's just the uncertainty around it. You and I are talking about it. Maybe we're part of the problem. You know, we worry about these things. We're thinking on these things. Yet what we were discussing earlier, you know, before we turned the recording on was the the bending of the supply chain, the, the lack of resilience that you know, I mentioned. We're now a member of the World Economic Forum, and I was in Antwerp a couple of weeks ago in the supply chain category talking about sustainability and resiliency. And, and as we've been discussing, Flock has a, has a very specific point of view on sustainability, but also on the resiliency side. You know, what we do is not uh, for fun or optional. What we do is make sure people eat. 
you know, we make sure that people have uh, the absolute goods required in order to live our lives. It's not all, you know, shiny new TVs and laptops, right? Like, yeah, sure, that's a big part of it. But it is truly uh, food and beverage, you know, it, it, it is making sure that we have the materials, you know, if your fridge breaks, you need parts or you need a new fridge. That's a real thing, you know. So, so, so these goods are, are, are tremendously important and the supply chain bending was incredibly problematic and created a lot of pain for a lot of folks. I think that, that one of the things that we think about is as we see things like a pending rail strike or we see volatility in the diesel markets, it just fuels, it, it just leads right back to what we believe at Flock, which is a much, much more malleable, flexible supply chain whereby it's not capacitated or constrained. And what I mean by that is the the LTL industry is known for moving a certain number of pallets in a, in a certain time frame. The truckload industry is known for a certain number of pallets in a certain time frame. Ocean freight, air freight, flatbed, all of these things, the vessels leave at certain times, the aircraft takes off at certain times. This all seems obvious, like so obvious, in fact, why am I talking about it? That's the problem with these things, though. Things We become myopic, right? We're so close to it, we can't even see it anymore. We believe that there's no alternative. At Flock, we would say, produce and release. Put it in the Flock Freight River. What did you make today? Don't worry about it. Don't worry if it's too big or too small. Just give it to Flock. Put it into our supply chain, powered by software, not by you know facilities, and what we can do is we'll match it up with all the other things that are flowing directionally where they need to go. And we'll make sure right. it's at the lowest cost, highest quality in the manner. manner. And I, I say this, you know, sure, is it a bit of a commercial for Flock? Yeah, but I, I say this to inspire other people to be building their versions of more flexible supply chains. If we're going to be so rigid as to say that, you know, this must be this way and it's the only way it can be because we think it's optimal, then with that rigidity often comes, you know, fragility, right? Like these things just become brittle and that is the last thing. And, 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 and as for somebody who's been working in the supply chain industry for 25 years, I'm proud to say the supply chain did not break. I, I mean, I think definitionally we all ate. So, you know, it didn't break, but it I think some of us ate more than we needed to. <laughs> yeah, that's the other side of it, right? We stayed in, we ate too much, maybe we drank too much. It's nice. This isn't your great-grandparents' pandemic. Yeah, no, it's a different environment. But, you know, we, we, we saw a lot of bending going on. And now that we're kind of coming out of it, in some manner, there's a little bit less volatility going on. The, there's less, you know, ships at the port waiting to get unloaded. I was, I was trying to explain that to somebody uh, the other day. They, they hear about 100 vessels off the port of Long Beach, off San Pedro, and I think they think like, oh, that's a lot of boats, like 100 boats. I'm like, no, no, no. Each ship has the equivalent of thousands of trucks on board, effectively, right? The and right. each one of those containers could potentially have thousands of boxes or things on board. So it's, a, it's thousands times thousands is what we're talking about. It's an enormous amount of freight to the point where you started going to your grocery store and you couldn't find that your favorite loaf of bread, you know, or, you know, you couldn't find in the, in the electronic store, you know, the new thing, you know, that you think you needed or a replacement thing for the thing that broke. Furniture was back ordered. You know, you have a construction project going on at home or work. It was going to take a lot longer. What's the net expensive? It drives inflation. You know, if you have to oh, continue yeah. to fund a job site that's incomplete because you're a builder and you want to build this thing and you want to sell this thing, you know, you probably have debt on that project like 99% of the time. You're funding that debt. Interest rates are going up. So it's just even more expensive to fund that debt. The supply chain in many ways, bending as badly as it did, created, accelerated and exacerbated a lot of the inflation that we're seeing in the economy right now. As somebody who works in the supply chain, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run a 559 mile and I'm going to chew glass along the way to know that we are doing our part to prevent, you know, massive widespread economic recession. But we need to build a more flexible and sustainable supply chain. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you touch on a number of these challenges. So we have the diesel diesel shortage. I'm, I'm not an economist. I can't explain this in great detail, but I do know that there it's coming. And by the way, it's coming at a time of year. Normally, if there's a diesel shortage, it's after after the winter. It's in the spring, which is obviously better because we use this. Um, we're using more oil in the winter, but also the railroad strike, very big potential. And by the way, when you think about 
what that railroad strike potentially brings is that's the that's the railroad that's bringing your stuff from Long Beach yeah. or LA to the East Coast. 80% of us are on east of the Mississippi. So that's where all, most of the stuff goes. And I know now all of a sudden we're moving ships to the other side of the country. So all of a sudden, all of the trucking companies that were moving stuff on the West Coast back to the East Coast now somehow have to re- well, we have to rejigger our supply chains. And we've gotten pretty good at this. But that was a, that was something we didn't expect is to see all of the a, a big chunk of trucking move from the West Coast to the East Coast. And now, of course, we got the holiday season on top of this. But I'll add a few more things. The, the war in Russia and the Ukraine is obviously causing some problems. We're going to have some grain shortages that doesn't feed America, but it does feed the rest of the world. And what we've learned is how connected right. we are. And when we're talking about more VUCA ahead, we're going to have problems with China going forward. It's 50% of supply chain functions in the world are in China. As we bring stuff back, back, more volatility. So I think you mentioned it, you know, keep running those 559 miles, but I think also figure out how you can become more resilient. I mean, that, that has to be the answer. We found we were a little brittle. We'd be, as you said, we bend, we bent rather than broke during the pandemic. But I really think that we're in for a wild ride here. And you know, we. By the way, we've taken a few good punches here over the last few years. Now it's just getting ready for another few punches. And I think, in the way, we always kind of thought, well, yeah, every once in a while you have a cycle where you're down. I think this is a. a these are strange times. So be prepared. Well, you know, if you, if you imagine like a piece of metal that's bending, you know, metal's pretty strong. And let's just assume in this imagination, you know, we're the Hulk and we can bend this metal. And that, that was sort of the pandemic. And then maybe post-pandemic over the last one or two quarters, we've unbent it and straightened it. But, you know, there's that crease in the metal, right? You know, and maybe that's fine. It's a little bit less strong, but it's plenty strong. We bend it again. We straighten it out. We bend it again. And, and you know where this is headed. At some point, that thing just breaks. That's not the answer. What we don't want to do is, sure, in the short run, it got bent. Let's straighten it out as quickly as we can. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that it's now been repaired. Let's also not fool ourselves into thinking there's another 100 years till we face a, a crisis. Let's assume that we need to build something that is truly flexible, that it's a different material. It's not made of metal. It's made of something else. I would argue software. Additionally, let's let's agree that it's not 100 years till the what's next because the world is getting ever increasingly complex. To your point on the on the grains, a good example. You know, grain may not be you know leaving Ukraine in the rates that it was feeding, let's say, Europe. And so in the U.S., we feel insulated from that. But the reality is that means Europe now is buying more grain from someplace else, which then will create less grain that effectively may may domino into our homes. I don't think there's many categories anymore that are truly insulated from this this world kind of phenomena. They're, they're, to the point whether we're talking supply chain, food, energy, um, it is, you know, the core Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Food and shelter. It is all very, very interrelated now. We saw that during COVID. Problems over there affected us over here. Problems over here affect them over there. I think we can no longer keep our heads in the sand and say, yeah, you know, we're okay. I mean, I would argue doing the right thing, you know, we should do the right thing because the right thing to do. Just like a business we talked about, you know, you should feel comfortable pursuing profit. In fact, I would argue, and we discussed, it's essential to be profitable in order to keep operating your business and provide those fantastic uh, goods and services to the world. So I do think there's like a responsibility, but there's also a practical reason why you need to care. It may not be today but or, or tomorrow, but it's going to be the day after that. You know, we're just way too interconnected at this point across all categories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And those commodities, you think like grain is a commodity. So somebody says, hey, you know what? I've got all these commodities. I can sell some to Asia, some to Europe, some to the U.S., sure. some to South America. Oh, I just sold more to Asia and... and uh so all of a sudden, our, and again, that for most of us, you say, okay, the price of food went up 10%. I'm, I'm good. I'm still going to eat probably too much. <laughs> but that inflation is going to impact our businesses. So anyway, I think the name of the game when we talk about VUCA is just as you said, is let's build a better solution. And, and, and I'll throw this out there and I'm not trying to 
self-lock freight here. But what I love about one of the solutions is I'm an LTL guy. I used to run a little 3PL. We did a lot of LTL. During the pandemic, what we learned is LTL companies would tell you, yeah. don't call. I can't do that lane for three weeks. And, and, and I joked with you before we hit record, oh, great. I'll just shut my plant down for three weeks until you can, can start moving my, my components there. Flock Freight gives us LTL shippers access to the world of truckload freight, which is so, so much bigger than yeah. LTL. LTL is 10 companies have 80% of the business, 80% of the volume. The top 25, I think, are 90% of the volume. And I can tell you this. Uh, from my own experience, when you call the largest LTL companies, if you're a broker, they don't answer. <laughs> they say, we don't work with brokers. And it, as a, a small shipper, even, they some of them are like, oh, we're busy. <laughs> and so it, it's it's not it's not as easy as truckload to get a, to get capacity. So I love the fact that if I'm go, working with Flock, I all of a sudden go, wait a sec, there's a whole new world of capacity that I can take advantage of. And by the way, throw in less damage, less handling, less less time to move it. Yeah. No. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I'll I'll just simply add to it that the truckload industry, having spent my career in both, is also more flexible. You know, pursuant to the previous conversation, flexibility and resiliency of the supply chain. And it's not a shot at the LTL carriers. It's it's a mousetrap conundrum. You know, when you build a hub and spoke infrastructure, it is by design meant to be kind of rigid in. It's optimization kind of thinking versus the truckload industry says, I'm just a truck. You know, I mean, I could be here and there. <laughs> Give me a number that makes sense. Get me full and I'll, I'll go there. So we saw, you know, to kind of nerd out on the LTL side, we saw linear foot, you know, minimums, minimums and maximums changing. We saw overdimensionalization changing. So, you know, for instance, many of the LTL carriers used to say, well, we'll take up to 18 feet. It came down to 16 feet, came down to, you know, today it's kind of, oh. you know, they just don't want the freight. Now they'll change their mind. We go into a deep recession. They'll say, Hey, I'm pretty good with that 16 feet, by the way, if you want to bring that back. What Flock is saying, 4, 6, 8, 10, 30, 40, you shouldn't have to worry about that. There shouldn't be a constraint. Oh, yeah. I used to, what I hated the most about, I'm, I came from automotive, and I will say this, automotive guys always think this way, is complexity is the enemy of quality. Yeah. And then when you get an LTL load and they say, here it is, price can be $850, Oren. And you load it up, you're like, good. And then later on, the oh, actually, the price is uh, $1,980. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. You 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 get an extra pallet in there. And you're like, wait, wait a sec. How can pound. this possibly be right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I remember being at an LTL terminal, and there was a guy walking around with one of those digital measuring machines. And the sales guy says, we make a million dollars a year from this guy, each one of them. So it was basically... Oren said this was this many feet, and they said, "Nope, Oren, you're wrong. Now you got to pay." Anyway, let's 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 wrap this bad boy up. I'm surprised you didn't already wave me off here, Oren. So I want to talk about. I'll answer in any order you want, Oren. So what's next for you? What's next for Flock Freight? And then what's next for this industry? And again, answer in any order you want. I don't think about me versus Flock. I, I, it's easier to speak to you. You are you and Flock joined at the hip. <laughs> You know, what's next for Flock is really just scaling what we've built. You know, we're thrilled to be in the latter part of 2022 going into 2023 with with VUCA, right? And there are many people in freight tech whom are considering pivots, who are considering, you know, different paths that they possibly need to pursue. Flock is not. Do not expect to hear Flock getting into anything other than we're doing. We are shared truckload. We are ride share for freight. We are two to 24 pallets. You know, it was one of, you could think of us as eight to, to 38 linear feet or 42 linear feet, turning you know, half full, you know, but paid full truckloads into shared truckloads and turning traditional LTL and partials and volume, you know, into shared truckloads. So we're just really into the, uh, into the scaling phase at this point, building more automation, even better technology, better pricing intelligence. We're hiring constantly. So you know, please look at look us up, flockfreight.com. More of the same. From an from an industry perspective, I think you're gonna see a reckoning. I think you're gonna see the deck get reshuffled. I think we're gonna see a lot of MA in 23. I think in part because some of the incumbents are um, you know, they exist in the public markets and they built great businesses. 
they are profitable, albeit kind of traditional in their point of view, and, and they're going to want to enter into our side of the street. And in, in many cases, the way to do that is via an acquisition. I think we're going to see a lot of exits from the industry, and I don't necessarily mean like positive financial exits, but I, I think we're going to see failures. You know, people whom are going to say, you know, we gave them hell and it didn't work out and maybe it should have or maybe it shouldn't have. And, and you're, you know, sometimes you're just on the wrong side of timing and, and sometimes, you know, it just isn't going to work. So I think we're going to see some of that. But I, but I think we're going to see by the end of next year, a skinnier version, a more focused version of what innovation really looks like, of what transformation looks like. I think for the consumer, there's going to be continued uncertainty and volatility. And I think those two things are going to be driving one another. I do think that this time the supply chain will bend less. I really, really believe that. I think we'll see some some contraction, you know, recession in the markets. But I think that we're all kind of on our toes now in a really healthy way. You know, maybe we were all caught a little flat-footed in Q1 of 2020. You know, maybe that's okay. Maybe shame on us. I don't think that's likely to happen again. I think this time, you know, whether it's a it's a virus or uh, a war in another part of the world or, or, or a trade war, you know, or something geopolitical, I think that we still are in that heightened sense of awareness and, and really thinking. So I think we're going to be a little bit more agile this time than last time. And I think that as people could, I think people are now fundamentally a little bit more open to alternatives. That's something definitely that Flock has benefited from is, you know, hey, we're different. We'd like to talk to you. And people saying, yeah, I'm interested in hearing about different. I mean, you got to prove it, right? But I'm willing to take that call and an opportunity to introduce yourself to the world. So I'm ever the optimist. I think it'll be, it'll continue to, to see a lot of uncertainty and volatility. But I think we're going to, I think we're going to innovate. Not just, you know, we at Flock, but I think the world, I, you know, I think those of us working in supply chain. But I think we're going to be a little more sober this go around, a little bit less arm waving, fancy unicorn kind of, you know, rhetoric and more like true high technology driving efficiency, driving innovation. I tried that last time. That wasn't real. Or I tried that last time. That is very real. We need more of that this time. I think we've gone through that first wave and now we're entering the, the second wave. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent. So normally I ask people what conferences they're going to be at. I know right now as we're talking, F3 is going on. I'm assuming we got some flock freight people down there and Chattanooga. But uh, what other conferences are you guys going to be at? You go to all the major ones? We, yeah, we had a, a big presence at uh, CSCMP and, and that was great. I'll be honest. I, I'm not sure the old trade floor trade show floor model is still really the, the the most efficient way to go to market. What I love about it, though, is the congregation of awesome people. You know, you know that there's going to be 50 friends and colleagues and really interesting people there that you know personally that you can get together. Right. So there's, there is one area where you ask me what's next for like me personally versus Flock. Flock will continue to be at a lot of the, a lot of support, a lot of the industry things, both because it's a great place for us to meet people. And secondly, we want to support our industry. For me personally, going to be doing a lot of like the World Economic Forum stuff, the innovator stuff. The oh, I see you did stuff. a TED talk. Did a TED talk, which, you know, my hat's off to TED. You know, I would love to take any credit for that. The reality is I sat in a chair. I will put a link to the TED Talk oh, in the show you. notes if yeah, you give it, it to me. You know, I, I'm not one to, to toot my own horn and say I did a great job. TED did an amazing job. It was, again, me in a chair for five or six hours. TED cuts it to three minutes and they produce it. Utterly <laughs> fantastic, though, talking about the sustainability side of what we do. So I would say that Flock and, and myself will be spending some more time on on thinking bigger and deeper and wider about not just disruption, but also innovation, you know, how we can create greater resiliency. You know, I'll be headed to, to Davos in Switzerland to the annual World Economic Forum meeting. It's my first time going. I'm, I'm intrigued as to what that's going to be. And, and obviously, I'll meet a lot of interesting folks. But our ambition there is to... Where? So you're going to be, are you going to be a part of the Illuminati at that point? Uh, you know, no, I, I will not. They may be there. I don't know. But I haven't learned any secret handshakes. What, what I have, though, is met, I'll call it kind of incumbents and up and comers that are really passionate about the things we're talking about. I mean, sincerely, it is really inspiring when you meet an incumbent sitting on, you know, 50 billion, $100 billion businesses, massive, and they're talking about supply chain resiliency. And they're saying, we can do yeah. better. And then you've got the up-and-comers, myself and others, saying, yeah, 
we can do better. I actually walked out of that, that meeting in Antwerp and I'll, oh, there's another one in New York and then the one up in Davos. And, and I expect to walk out of there feeling inspired about how we can work harder and create a better impact. I mean, there's a tremendous responsibility when we start thinking about the supply chain. And, and I'm also really proud to bring some spotlight, maybe even, God forbid, some gravitas to the hardworking men and women of our industry. We feed the world. I mean, quite simply, we make sure, you know, one quick anecdote, if I can, you know, in Q2 of 2020, my wife and kids were making signs to put in front of the house and, you know, hold on the side of the road to say thank you to our first responders. Thank you to our medical professionals. And I said, awesome, but you got to make one more sign. You're missing a sign. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, thank you, truck drivers. Thank you, men and women for driving. Looked at me and they're like, yeah, we need to. I'm like, yeah. You know, thank you, first responders. Thank you, medical professionals. Thank you, truck drivers, for the work that you do. Thank you, supply chain professionals, for working tirelessly so that all of us have an opportunity to to eat. Right. Yeah, your essential workers don't start until our essential workers (laughs) drop off the goods. Yeah, that's absolutely right. (laughs) And and not, that's not to disparage any of the essential workers, but yeah, it is it is overlooked. And it's you know it's one thing to say I went to this I, I work in retail or I work you know at a, a hospital. Those are demanding, horrible jobs on, during the pandemic. But to be a truck driver and say I'm on the road, yeah. I'm driving, I'm 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 ten hours or twenty hours from my family in these crazy times. That's that's tough. Really tough. Kudos to them. So anyway. Oren, thank you so much. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, I'll put a link to uh, Flock Freight, anything else that you're, t- I'll put the TED talk in if your marketing people get it to me. I probably can find it, but I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you guys over at Flock Freight. And I really do appreciate you taking the time. You're always a very interesting guest. Thank you so much for having me. I love, I love connecting with you and, and your audience. It's always a blast talking to people who really understand people who really, really get it and getting to, you know, speak the language, our fluency of, of freight and supply chain. So thanks so much for having me. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.